Karen Abbott is the New York Times best-selling author of Sin in the Second City, American Rose, and Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy, which was named one of the best books of the year by Library Journal, the Christian Science Monitor, and Amazon, and about which she spoke here, if you remember, back in 2014. She has written for NewYorker.com, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, Smithsonian Magazine, and other publications. Her new book, The Ghosts of Eden Park, is an indie next pick, an Amazon best book of August, and a top fall history title for Newsweek and Publishers Weekly, which called it a real life page turner that will appeal to fans of Eric Larson. The Wall Street Journal calls The Ghost of Eden Park vibrant and enormously readable and names Abbott one of the masters of the art of narrative nonfiction. So please give a warm welcome to Karen Abbott. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Graham, for that uh, great introduction. It's always a pleasure to be here back in Richmond. Uh, thanks to the uh, Virginia uh, Historical Society, the Museum of Culture, for having me. Um, I fell in love with Richmond when I uh, spent a lot of time researching my previous book, Liar, Temptress, Soldier, Spy. Um, this book, The Ghost of Eden Park, which I'll be speaking about today, um, takes place in a different time period, the 1920s. But I wanted to just get into a little Richmond frame of mind um, with a news clipping I found about Richmond's own history um, during the 1920s um, with rum rummers and bootlegging. Um, this is a brief paragraph, a very breathless paragraph from the Richmond Times-Dispatch from August of 1927. A running gunfight and rum chase down fashionable Monument Avenue, <laughs> punctuated by pistol shots and the tinkle of breaking glass as bottles of liquor were hurled to the pavement, ended early today in a cornfield, several miles from the city when a police automobile was forced to leave the road to avoid an automobile blocking the road. The rum runners escaped. Um, and the last line, liquor was thrown out at almost every block along Monument Avenue. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> can't quite picture that happening today. Um, but just to get you in the mood there. Um, and so I, I usually talk about, uh, begin my talks with um, telling you how I get ideas for my stories. And I usually get my ideas from dusty old archives and libraries and out of print books. Um, but I got the idea for the Gozevine Park from watching television. Um, in particular, a, a television show called Boardwalk Empire. Um, if anybody's familiar with that, it ran on HBO for five seasons. And it was really a brilliant show. It, it perfectly captured the dawn of the 1920s. Um, you know, bootleggers were just beginning uh, ways to plot the prohibition laws, and nobody had yet heard of Al Capone. So there was a minor character named George Remus pictured here. Um, he was so innovative and so cuckoo, and he spoke of himself in the third person, as this shot uh, can attest. Um, this is actually to give you some context here. He's on the phone with Steve Buscemi's character, who was named Nucky Thompson, and they're in a business deal, and things are getting a bit heated, and Remus, speaking in the third person, says, Remus finds you petty and resentful. Um, Steve Buscemi's report, uh, retort cannot really be um, spoken about in polite company. <laughs> Um, but I was mesmerized by this guy. He stole every scene he was in, and I wondered if he was a real person. And indeed, George Remus was a real person who also did speak of himself in the third person in real life. And I began researching him and found certain phrases. He said things like, well, it's going to be a hell of a Christmas for Remus. So many people want to kill Remus. And my personal favorite, Remus's brain exploded. Um, you'll have to read the book to see if a brain explosion actually occurred. It's a subjective thing, believe it or not. Um, but he's the most bizarre and outlandish character I've ever come across in history, and I'm very excited to tell you about him. So before I talk about George Remus, I want to just talk for a minute about researching George Remus, because my guess is that there are a lot of research nerds in here and um, librarians and people who enjoy that sort of thing. Um, as soon as I found out that there was a 5,500-page trial transcript about George Remus at the Yale University Law Library in New Haven, Connecticut, I took the train up there and parked myself for a week from opening to closing beneath this beautiful, gorgeous overhead scanner. 
um, which was possibly the most wondrous thing I've ever seen in my life. You know, I don't, every library should have one. You know, you always see these scanners where you have to fuss with the book and turn and twist and align. Here you just sat there and the pages just turned and the thing, it was like a sunbed of knowledge. Um, and I, I, I sat there and copied every single page um, and this transcript had fascinating tidbits in it um, that really gave you insight into life of the 1920s and, and George Remus himself. One of my favorite tidbits was that George Remus did not wear underwear. <laughs> now, apparently this was cause for great alarm in the 1920s. Not wearing underwear was potentially the sign of an unsound mind. Um, it took me four months to go through this entire transcript and take notes. My resulting outline was 85,000 words, which is almost the length of the book itself. Um, and uh, it, it just was a, a fascinating research. And I, I tried to write the book as a bit of a whodunit. Um, um, you know, I wanted to keep suspense. There's a murder and it could be anyone murdering anyone at some point. So I, I, I used this transcript to really form the spine of the book and, and the basis of that whodunit. So how do you solve a problem like George Remus? Um, his life was much more interesting and dramatic than anything that was portrayed on Boardwalk Empire. Um, he emigrated from Germany when he was a kid and the family settled in Chicago. His father was a mean and abusive alcoholic. Remus did not have a happy childhood. Um, at age 14, he had to quit school to uh, go work in his uncle's pharmacy because his father could no longer work and Remus needed to help support the family. Now, Remus sort of threw himself into whatever he was doing. Um, he was very excited about pharmacy work. He called himself, quote, a druggist devil boy. Um, and he began studying pharmacy law. Uh, he actually lived at the pharmacy, and I think it was because he was afraid to go home um, and, and face his father's tantrums. He slept on a cot in the back room. Um, he eventually uh, learned pharmacy, learned drugs, bought his uncle's pharmacy, bought another one, and began calling himself Dr. Remus. Um, peddling all sorts of concoctions, including like uh, women will appreciate this mercury creams for your face. Um, <laughs> uh, I wonder how those women looked uh, 20 years from after that. Um, but pharmacy work wasn't enough. While he was uh, working a pharmacy at night, he began studying law. He passed the Illinois bar and he quickly established himself as a very uh, successful and prominent Chicago defense attorney. And he became known for his court romantics. Uh, he would leap across the room. He would cry. He would tear at his hair. He would weep. He would yell. He would shout. He would attack opposing counsel so that everybody ended up in a pile of limbs on the floor. Um, his fans called him the Napoleon of the Chicago bar and his detractors called him the weeping and crying Remus. Um, and he had plenty of both. And he noticed that in early 1920, his docket began filling with a new type of client, uh, men who were violating prohibition laws. And he was amazed with the ease with, with which they paid their fines. They would come in, slap down a couple hundred dollars and be on their way, no harm, no foul. And he himself, you know, knew he was much smarter than these men and he saw a chance to clean up. And those are his words. Um, and using his pharmaceutical background and his legal background, he scoured the Volstead Act and looked for a loophole. And he found one. And the loophole was that with a physician's prescription, it was legal to manufacture, distribute, sell alcohol for quote unquote medicinal purposes. <laughs> Now, Remus knew nobody was using alcohol for medicinal purposes. And of course, he had a comment on this in, in his customary flourish of language. He had quite a way with words. And he said it was the greatest comedy, the greatest perversion of justice that he, I have ever known of any civilized country in the world. And a plan began to take shape in his mind. A major part of his plan involved this woman. Uh, this was Imogene Holmes um, before she became Imogene Remus. They met when um, she was working as a quote unquote dust girl in Remus's office. Um, she would tidy up his desk and sweep the floors after hours. Um, and they began talking and they headed off. Um, she was a single uh, mother. She had a young daughter she was working to support. And they commiserated about their uh, mutually miserable marriages. Imogene's husband was a philanderer who never had enough money. And Imogene, above all, was very concerned about having enough money. And George Remus also had a bad marriage. His wife um, filed a divorce complaint in which one of the official, her official gripes was that he had a habit of coming home early in the morning. Um, if you can imagine that going on an official divorce complaint today. Um, but they left their spouses. They fell in love, or at least Remus fell in love. They decided to plan their own wedding. 
Um, they got married in June of 1920. Um, uh, Remus really confided in Imogene. He trusted her. He valued her opinion. Um, he told her all about uh, his bootlegging plans and how he wanted to become the country's preeminent bootlegger. He even coined a nickname for her. He had many for her, but his first nickname um, was the Prime Minister. That's what he called her. Now, Imogene, meanwhile, had only one nickname for Remus. She called him Daddy. So after their wedding in June of 1920, Remus Ruth, her young daughter, and Remus moved to Cincinnati, which was a very strategic location. 80% um, of the country's pre-prohibition bonded whiskey um, was stored within a 300-mile radius of Cincinnati, so it was very easy for him to have access to it. Um, and they bought this grand mansion in Price Hill, which was Cincinnati's most exclusive neighborhood, and they planned extensive renovations, renovations that would total $750,000. Um, which is about $12 million in today's money. Um, as a gift to his new bride, he put the deed in Imogene's name, which was one, one of many gestures he would come to regret. <laughs> um, I do believe that Remus at this point was deeply in love with Imogene, but around this time, she confided to a friend that she didn't really want to marry Remus, but she wanted to, quote, roll him for his role. Oh. This is George Connors. Um, Remus met this, this man soon after moving to Cincinnati, um, and he, they were fast friends. He became Remus's most important lieutenant and confidant. Um, Connors had a very cool, calm, and collected temperament, which really balanced out Remus's temper. Um, they sort of fit each other very well in that, in that way. Um, and once Connors was in place and Remus had his lieutenant, he just, uh, began to implement his scheme. Now, Remus had a four-part scheme to become a bootlegger. Um, number one was to buy distilleries to gain possession of all that pre-prohibition bonded whiskey. The next was to acquire wholesale drug companies, which would tie into the whole medicinal purposes scheme. The third was to attain withdrawal permits that would allow him to remove whiskey from those warehouses and sell it ostensibly on the legal medicinal market. But the fourth part of the scheme was the, the brilliant part. Um, Remus formed his own transportation company. So he would load up all of those barrels of whiskey on his trucks, and the men would supposedly be delivering it to the medicinal market, but another set of employees would hijack those trucks, steal all of the liquor, and then sell it on the illegal market at any price that Remus named. So he was basically robbing Remus to pay Remus. <laughs> and he called this unwieldy octopus of the enterprise the circle. Um, made sense. And within a year of launching the circle, George Remus owned 35% of the alcohol in the United States, which is just astounding. Um, and of course, he had a comment on this accomplishment in the third person. Remus was in the whiskey business, he said, and Remus is the biggest man in the business. Cincinnati is the American mecca for good liquor, and America has to come to Remus to get it. Now, at this time, his fortune was estimated to be between $20 million and $40 million, which is a figure not adjusted for inflation. That is actually in 1921 money. And the irony of, of Remus making this fortune from alcohol is that George Remus was a lifelong teetotaler who never drank a drop himself. So this is Remus's storage facility. Um, it was located about 10 miles outside of Cincinnati. It was called Death Valley. And George Connors, whose lieutenant, found it after Remus was attacked by whiskey pirates. Now, whiskey pirates weren't of the Ahoy matey variety. Um, they were roving bands of thieves who would descend upon warehouses, bound and gag the watchmen, cut the telephone wires, and steal all of the barrels inside. And Remus had an encounter with these whiskey pirates one night. He was coming um, back uh, from K Kentucky back to Cincinnati over the bridge, and he was confronted by a, a group of whiskey pirates. Um, they went after him, they accosted him, and Remus, um, always, who had always uh, uh, t taken pride into his, in his um, uh, athletic abilities, in fact, he was a competitive swimmer back in Chicago and boasted about spending a record six hours in freezing Lake Michigan. Um, Remus was not going to take this attack lightly. He counterattacked. He managed to fight all four men of the, uh, off, but they did get away with his liquor. A couple weeks later, the head of the Whiskey Pirates approached Remus and said, you deserve to keep your liquor. You put up such a good fight. Remus thanked the man and hired him and all of the Whiskey Pirates so they would never rob him again. <laughs> sort of a brilliant business move. But in response to that incident, Remus decided he needed a storage facility that was more secure. So he opened up Death Valley, which was named in honor of Whiskey Pirates who tried to trespass and would never heard from again. 
Um, and uh, they had automatics and weaponry stashed at strategic locales. They had watchmen everywhere. Um, and the visiting rum runners who would come to Death Valley were treated as though they were on a lavish vacation. As soon as they arrived, a bunch of men would scramble out and wash their cars. Um, they were treated to a hot home-cooked meal. Remus even established craps games where they could, um, you know, the, the best customers even had lines of credit they could pay the next time they came. Um, and Remus gave them plenty of, uh, so they didn't have to drink their own supply, he gave them plenty of bottles of free booze. He wanted to keep them as repeat customers. Um, so Death Valley was very um, effective in keeping out uh, uh, whiskey pirates, but it was not quite as effective in keeping out prohibition agents, as we will soon learn. So, of course, the rum runners who would take Remus's booze uh, went back and sold it in their hometowns, including in speakeasies, or speaks as they called them back then. And here was one of my favorite finds from my research. Uh, it's a menu for a Chicago speakeasy from about 1925. Um, some of my favorite cocktail names on here, uh, a corpse reviver, <laughs> which actually was a hangover cure. It makes sense. You know, the corpse reviver, you know, bite, bite the hair of the dog kind of thing. Um, lots of things named after Dirty Dick. I don't know if that was an actual person, but there was a Dirty Dick special, a Dirty Dick's flip. Um, to counteract Dirty Dick, there was a maiden's prayer. Um, and, uh, you know, it's astounding to me that a champagne cocktail was 75 cents. Um, I don't think we'll ever find a champagne cocktail for 75 cents again. Um, but it, it's wonderful that these, these little relics survive. So aside from Imogene Remus, his wife, um, Remus's mother was the most important woman in his life. Um, as you could probably tell by this picture, he was a bit of a mama's boy. This is Marie Remus and George Remus. Um, and she had had a very difficult life um, when she came over from Germany with her family and was questioned by immigration officials. She was so beleaguered that she had forgotten the names of four other children who had died, if you can imagine that. Um, she and George Remus were always very close. And their closeness was illustrated by a very peculiar event. Um, I had mentioned before that Remus's father was an alcoholic. So as the story goes, one night, Frank Remus and Marie Remus were out at a neighborhood saloon in Chicago. They got into a fight. Marie Remus grabbed a bottle and smashed it over Frank Remus's head. And he shortly uh, thereafter died from this wound. Now, to protect his mother and to keep her from speaking indiscriminately to the coroner, George Remus locked her in an attic for three days until the inquest was over. Now you can imagine, oh, mom, just go into the attic for a bit. It's, it's for your own good, you know. Um, probably needless to say, Imogene Remus and Marie Remus did not get along. Remus was very generous with his family and with his mother in particular and always made sure she had enough money. Um, and of course, Imogene wanted all of the money for herself. So George Remus was also a very jealous person, but all of his jealousy was directed toward Imogene. He didn't care about possessions as much as he just cared about possessing Imogene. Um, and that relationship is illustrated um, by one night when Remus came back from a business trip and he arrived at Cincinnati in the middle of the night and found out that Imogene was not at home. He asked a servant where she had gone and the servant said that she had gone to Indianapolis with a bunch of friends and one salesman. And Remus knew who the salesman was. He didn't trust the guy. He didn't like the guy. He had forbidden Imogene to associate with this person and he was furious at her insolence. So what does Remus do? He jumped into his car. He has his driver hightail it back out um, to Indianapolis. Um, and he knew exactly where Imogene would be at the Claypool Hotel, which was the most lavish hotel in Indianapolis in the 1920s. It was their favorite hotel in the city. So we went right into the Indianapolis Hotel and he brought with him a loaded cane. So he gets to the hotel. Um, there was one small mercy. Imogene and the salesman were registered in different rooms, but he finds out where the salesman is. He takes the elevator up. He holds his loaded cane. It's the middle of the night and he knocks on the salesman's door. The salesman gets up. He has no idea, you know, what's going on. Opens the door to find George Remus standing there with a loaded cane wielded over his head. Um, and I'm just going to leave it there, a little bit of suspense. But suffice it to say, that's a bit of a taste of George Remus's temper. So by mid-1921, the mansions were finished on the renovations. As I mentioned before, they were $750,000, about $12 million in today's money. Um, they were comprised of 31 rooms, very cur uh, curated and uh, carefully designed by Imogene and George Remus. Um, there were chandeliers the size of automobiles, imported artwork and rugs, and Remus's prized possession was, was an authentic signature of George Washington's worth $50,000. 
um, as you can might be able to tell from this uh, a gold piano, by the way, that was a gold piano. And as you might be able to tell from looking at this picture, George Remus was not a minimalist. <laughs> You sort of like to throw everything in there and see what stuck um, in a pinch. Apparently everything stuck, um, but it was the pride and, and joy was was his home. And, and um, you know, he and Imogene had both grown up very poor and it was it meant something to them to have this kind of uh, lavish surroundings. Here's another of their favorite rooms. This was a solarium. And the mansion really just illustrated their social aspirations. They both longed to be accepted by society, not just in Cincinnati, but across the country. Um, and and they, they wanted to be acknowledged and respected by old money and sort of um, accepted as an intellectual equals as well. And to that end, they planned a very ostentatious New Year's Eve party for December of 1921. In preparation, six maids addressed the, uh, mailed these envelopes, which were designed by Imogene, by the way, and uh, sent them to journalists, politicians, captains of industry, um, and the Cincinnati's most important families, people like the Tafts. Of course, William Howard Taft and all of his family were still in Cincinnati and were, the, of course, the, the, the creme de la creme of society there. Now, if all went well, this was going to be their big social debut. Um, you can see the inscription here, dive to health, swim to wealth, float on happiness, 1921, 1922, with their little cameos of their pictures up there. And considering the level of debauchery they had planned for this party, I don't quite understand the mom and the baby <laughs> on the lower right-hand corner. It seems sort of out of place, but this was Imogene's design and this was, and what Imogene wanted, Imogene got. Here's Imogene in her newly renovated boudoir. Um, uh, the, getting ready for the party. Um, I love the details, the, the, the fringe lamps and things like that. Um, and, and it was a very important night for her too. You know, she was finally somebody. She was Mrs. George Remus and she wanted to capitalize on that. Uh, one of Remus's friends gave her this very flattering appraisal. Quote, she was the kind of woman that made you think of Turkish Arams, Oriental dances and Cleopatra. Her long frizzed brown hair always seemed to be falling about her dusky olive tinted face. Her every glance seemed to caress. Although she was voluptuous to the point of stoutness, there was something feline in her every movement. So here, I, I love these cartoons. Um, the, the newspapers just never do these things anymore. But here is a cartoon of actually what went down at this party. Um, the highlight of the party was the Greco-Roman swimming pool, which was built for $175,000 in which, Imogene, uh, which Remus christened the Imogene Baths in honor of his wife. The pool was heated, if you can imagine, an incredible luxury for 1921. And they even had something called electric baths, which were an early version of a tanning bed uh, heated by incandescent lights and said to make the user frisky. Um, <laughs> So you can see there are water nymphs doing synchronized swimming routines. Um, there were guests on the diving board uh, using it as a rostrum, giving toast. Um, daughter Ruth uh, came out at the stroke of midnight in a diaphanous nightgown and said, I'm the spirit of the new year. Imogene Remus, not to be outdone, put on this daring one piece and executed a perfect dive. And Remus handed out party favors. Um, he, he handed out diamond stick pins and watches for the men brand new 1922 cars for the women. Every woman at the party got a brand new 1922 car. Way before Oprah, obviously. It was, you get a car, you get a car. And there was a $1,000 bill tucked under everyone's plate. That's as if you and I went to a party today and found $14,000 just tucked underneath a plate to bring home. Um, and by the way, check beneath your seats. No, I'm kidding. Um, I wish. <laughs> um, and in a gesture emblematic of the times, one that would be remembered with awe decades later, Remus lit his guest cigars with a $100 bill. Now, this is an era when the average annual salary was $1,200. So just a sickening, obscene display of wealth, but, but a lot of fun. <laughs> Um, here is an actual picture of the, the watches that he gave out to the men. It's engraved from Mr. and Mrs. George Remus, 1921. And it, Remus's lavish parties are said to be partly why he is an inspiration for Jay Gatsby and the Great Gatsby. Um, there were all of these apocryphal stories that F. Scott Fitzgerald and George Remus met in Louisville when Fitzgerald was stationed there um, during his time in the military. And there's no hard evidence that, that they met, but it's definitely um, a true that uh, Fitzgerald knew who George Remus was when he began writing The Great Gatsby. The entire world by that point knew who George Remus was. 
And I think the parallels between George Remus and Jay Gatsby are, are conspicuous. You know, both men owned a string of pharmacies. Both men lived in an opulent mansion. Uh, both men were obsessed with a mysterious, enigmatic woman. Both men threw lavish parties. And as Fitzgerald wrote, uh, 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 Gatsby was uh, sprang from a platonic conception of himself and, uh, you know, longing to inhabit a world that didn't quite invite him, a world to which he never really belonged. And I think that both Remus and Jay Gatsby had that sense of melancholy about not belonging to a world that they really wanted to fit into. So I always have to have a, a kick-ass woman in my book, and this is her. This is Mabel Walker Willenbrandt. She was such a rich and complicated character. She was also on Boardwalk Empire as Esther Randolph, if anybody remembers her on there. Um, when President Warren Harding appointed her to be the Assistant Attorney General of the United States in 1921, women had only had the right to vote in this country for nine months. She was only 32 years old, she was five years out of law school, and she had never prosecuted a single case in her career. And suddenly she was in charge of uh, all prohibition cases across the country, thousands and thousands of them, including cases against George Remus. And I think it's fair to say that her bosses at the uh, Department of Justice and in the White House, who were all crooked, by the way, of course, this is the Ohio gang of Lauren Harding and all of those uh, criminals that would later be brought to light. Um, I, they were all in cahoots with bootleggers. So it's safe to assume that they said, oh, let's put the little lady in there. She's going to be overwhelmed. She's never prosecuted a case. She's, she's not going to know what she's doing. She's going to be completely uh, bowled over by her responsibility and, and fail and will be able to continue her cozy relationship with the bootleggers. But instead, she took her oath of office in the fall of 1921 and just began kicking some butt. Um, she was the most powerful woman in the country, which, uh, you know, you can imagine the sort of backlash against her for being a powerful woman in 1921. Um, and here, just to illustrate, uh, is an excerpt of a piece she wrote for the smart set, H.L. Mencken's magazine, comparing the world's treatment of boys and girls. A boy must do the job well and develop personality. A girl must do the job well and develop personality, plus break down skepticism about her ability, walk the tightrope of sexlessness without loss of her essential charm, and make the hard choice between giving up children in home life in order to advance or having them in the face of increased prejudice. So I always say that and people say, oh, hmm, not much has changed. <laughs> Um, but, but, uh, so this is part of what she was dealing with. She also had a serious hearing problem. She was nearly deaf and she spent an hour each morning fashioning her hair to cover her hearing aids so that people weren't aware she was also working with that handicap. And she was almost inhumanly tough and thick skinned qualities that were reinforced by the ice cold bath she took every morning. Her favorite saying was, life has few petted darlings, and she did not consider herself one of them. Um, my favorite event from her childhood, she once bit a pet cat's ear, and to teach her a lesson, her father bit her ear back. So that's kind of what the, the uh, ethic that she was in, <laughs> she learned. So soon after George Remus's big uh, 1921 New Year's Eve party, a letter lands on her desk from a resident in Cincinnati. And the letter said, all of Cincinnati is well aware that Remus spends lavishly on riotous living, owns no fewer than 40 automobiles, and dispenses enough liquor from his drug companies to meet the prescriptions of physicians of the whole central United States. Um, so it was clear that the uh, feds in Cincinnati needed her help. But Willebrand had a lot of factors working against her. Um, number one was politics. I, I mentioned all of the crooked people that she was surrounded with at the Justice Department and at the White House. Here's one of them. This is Jess Smith, also a character on Boardwalk Empire. Now, he had a desk just up the hallway from Willebrand's at the Department of Justice, but she had no idea what he did. He didn't really have a job title. He was he was sort of uh, Attorney General Harry Doherty's lackey. You know, Doherty was Willebrand's immediate boss. She called Jess Smith a glorified valet and really just didn't know what he did all day. George Remus, however, knew exactly what Jess Smith did because Jess Smith was Remus's liaison to the federal government. Now, Remus and Smith met all over the country, including in Richmond a few times, um, where Smith would promise Remus two things. One, he would provide Remus with authentic government withdrawal permits to get the whiskey out of his distilleries. You know, it was much easier to circumvent suspicious eyes if you had the withdrawal permits actually from the government and not forged or, or something like that. And number two, he promised Remus legal protection. 
George Remus would never get arrested. If Remus got arrested, he would never, uh, you know, go to trial. If he went to trial, he would not be convicted. If he were convicted, he would not spend a day in jail. If he went to jail, Attorney General Harry Dougherty would use his power to get him out. So Remus believed in Jess Smith, and he paid dearly for these assurances um, into the tunes of hundreds of thousands of dollars, probably by the end, and into the millions um, for these assurances. So Remus considered Smith um, his ace in the hole, as he put it, but this arrangement would not last very long. Dun, dun, dun. So here is another cartoon I found that I, I liked. It's illustrating the futility of Mabel Willenbrandt's job. Uh, here she is, give the little girl a hand. There's literally an ocean of alcohol coming at her and she has a broom to sweep it up with, which is pretty sadly accurate. And part of the problem was our country. Yeah, our, uh, we have 18 miles, uh, uh, two long craggy borders and 18 miles of coastline, all of it very unnervingly porous. Every night, air t airplane fleets were coming in from Mexico and going into Texas, bringing alcohol in. And there were other fleets coming in from Canada um, to, uh, to um, the Michigan Peninsula, all guided by searchlights. Um, so it was a very organized enterprise. And even on an individual level, there were so many inventive ways of smuggling booze. And I'm going to share a few of my favorite ones. A w amp double amputee boasted that he could hide 36 pints in his prosthetics. A raid on a soda parlor in Helena, Montana, uncovered squirt guns with a two-drink capacity. You know, a child squirt gun. They had a room, back room full of children's squirt guns full of booze. There were liquor-filled torpedoes on Long Island, liquor submarines that raised and lowered out of sight, and seagoing tugs with compartments hiding enough liquor for 30 New Year's Eve parties. Um, one of my favorites, women were even hiding pints inside of false rubber breasts. Here's another one. Um, this, uh, at first glance, is a book called The Four Swallows by J.B. Corn, not very subtle reference to John Barleycorn. Um, and at first glance, it, that's what it looks like. But of course, the book, book is actually a flask. You flip open the top, and there's four vials to fill with the liquor of your choice, hence the four swallows. Um, and this particular invention was the work of a uh, Brooklyn inventor named John Nutrie, who, before Prohibition, was known for making little personal banks that looked like books. So Prohibition came, he thought of a new way to, uh, <laughs> to do this, and, and patented this design in February of 1921. And it was a very popular way for people to smuggle around a little bit of booze, the four swallows. So here's another one. At first glance, this woman is sitting in a cafe and enjoying a cup of coffee. But what is she doing with her cane? Oh, she's dumping a bunch of alcohol into her coffee. Um, this was a very popular device also. People could buy canes of all sorts and just hide the, to the brim with liquor. Um, and clearly, she's very pleased with herself that, that she's getting away with this. So I like to call this one. <laughs> My, what a big flask you have. Um, but it's actually called the Bootlegger's Life Preserver. Um, and it was also a very popular uh, contraption, particularly for women in the 1920s if they wanted to smuggle some booze. And that was because uh, prohibition agents, believe it or not, back then were either too nervous or too decorous to search a woman's person to look for booze. And in some states, it was actually illegal to touch women and search them looking for booze. So the women, of course, took full advantage of this and would stuff booze in every possible area, um, in their bloomers, of course, in their, in their rubber breasts, in their, in the, underneath their big fur coats, anywhere you could put it, because the prohibition agents were not going to look. So these are called cow shoes. <laughs> Um, they did not actually carry liquor, but they were indispensable, indispensable to bootleggers who created moonshine in, in forests or meadows. So the heels were carved from a wooden block rese to resemble hooves and fastened by our little wire track. And they literally covered their tracks from prohibition agents who were pursuing them on foot. So the prohibition agent would be running through the meadow and just see a bunch of horse hooves and say, where did he go? Um, and, uh, and it was quite an ingenious ploy. These were very popular, particularly in the South. Um, this photo was taken from 1924. A prohibition agent finally caught up to one of the guys wearing this, snagged them for himself. I keep hoping they're going to come back on eBay. Like, I, I keep, <laughs> I really want a pair. I want them to come back in a style. Um, which brings me to uh, Mabel Walker Willenbrand's other problem, uh, was finding good prohibition agents. Uh, the starting salary for a prohibition agent was only $1,200, and they knew they could make much more money taking bribes from George Remus and other bootleggers. 
and there were no qualifications required to become a prohibition agent. Um, a lot of the recruitment was done outside of courthouses. So you'd find, you know, people who were traffic cops or, uh, or people who were bailiffs or just courtroom gadflies. Hey, do you want to be a prohibition agent? Sure. You know, sign me up. You could even have a, a record, a criminal record and become a prohibition agent. Um, there was one story I read about uh, a man was still doing time in upstate New York prison for murder and armed robbery when he got his badge. Um, and Willebrand wrote about her frustration with this. And she wrote, the dominant reality is that the whole problem is one of getting the right men in places of power and enforcement, men of creative thought, of courage, and those not slaves to political ambition. And by men, I also mean women, lots of them. So this guy, prohibition agent Franklin Dodge, was Willebrand's best hope. Um, he was pedigreed. He was from a very important Michigan family. His father was a very prominent politician there for decades, uh, an established lawyer. The family was very well respected. Um, and his father got Franklin Dodge his first government job, um, which was conducting a, a census of German immigrants and, and, you know, kicking out anybody who was not there legally or with sponsorship by an American citizen. Um, and, and I think Willem Brandt saw something in him. He was willing to go undercover. Uh, he was willing to employ unorthodox methods to get the information she needed. He was willing to take chances. And she decided that she was going to trust him to be her ace. Um, she called him her ace prohibition agent. So she sends Franklin Dodge to investigate George Remus's empire. And Franklin Dodge, despite all of Jess Smith's promises, gets enough information to send George Remus to prison. But that was not the first last time they would encounter each other. Franklin Dodge again encounters George Remus while he's serving time at the Atlanta Penitentiary. Um, he goes down there to investigate prison corruption. And while he's there, Remus hears rumors about Franklin Dodge that maybe he's not quite so scrupulous. He hears that he's open to bribes, he's open to a quid pro quo, and George Remus thinks, well, if I give Franklin Dodge some information about other bootleggers, something he could take to his bosses, it might make him look good, and if I maybe gave him some money, he, he might do a favor for me. He might help me get out of prison. So Remus formulates this plan, and he pulls Imogene aside during one of her visits and says, please, darling, begin to cultivate Franklin Dodge. I want him to get me out of prison. So Imogene Remus begins to cultivate Franklin Dodge, but not quite in the way that George Remus hopes. <laughs> so when George Remus is in prison, uh, Imogene Remus is 39 years old. And I was astounded by the number of articles I found that just talked about how terrifying flappers were, particularly if they were over the age of 30. A just terrifying phenomenon in our society. Um, people called her type the middle-aged flapper, the New York Times described them this way, not life but movement is what she seeks. It is she who does over the old house and builds a new one where her husband is deposited while she goes out in search of culture. So Franklin Dodge became Imogene's culture. <laughs> and to me, it was sort of an interesting theme of the book. Um, you know, here are women subverting societal expectations and mores, and what were the consequences of this behavior in this time period? Um, the 1920s, I think we can all agree, were a singularly dynamic and interesting and rich period in American history. I do not think George Remus or this story could have happened in any other time period or decade in American history. You know, we had just emerged from World War I, and the war swept away a lot of gender norms because women flooded the workplace. And so after the war, we found ourselves in a sort of interesting in-between period. Um, uh, people were more hedonistic ever after realizing life could be so short, but it was before the Great Depression came in and put a damper on everything. And in terms of women's advancement, you know, there were many people out there who were still upset and, and quite frankly terrified that their mothers, their sisters, their aunts, their girlfriends, their daughters suddenly had the right to vote. And so there was a backlash against women who defied so social conventions and they were publicly vilified. People seemed especially upset about middle-aged flappers because they should know better. They were old enough to know better. And one newspaper admonished them this way. Everyone knows that there is a certain type of American woman of a certain age who spends her life trying to be like the girls. The woman who finds herself earnestly mimicking the voice, mannerisms, and dress of the poor little flapper girls of any age are a greater menace than the 16-year-old kind. So speaking of the 16-year-old kind, they had their own magazine. Um, the tagline was, quote, not for old fogies. And they, they had actually a wonderful definition for a flapper that I wish would come back into vogue or just for, to describe anyone. Um, but it was somebody who had a jitney body and a limousine mind. 
And so they developed their own slang. Um, here's a couple of my favorites. A biscuit was a pettable flapper. A boob tickler was a girl who entertains father's out of town customers. And sweetie, this is very Southern and I think you'll appreciate this one. Sweetie meant that anybody a flapper hates. <laughs> I gotta love that. That's really biting Southern passive aggressiveness. Um, the male students of Syracuse University and other colleges were worried that flappers' brazen style made them appear more effeminate, and they all organized clubs across the country to protest smoking among women, women who wore flopping glasses, and the intrusion of women into realms heretofore restricted to men. So there was a movement. They were even portrayed as sexual predators. Uh, here's another cartoon. My favorite one is unsuspecting boys forced to endure such unseemly exercises as cheek dancing. <laughs> oh, the horror. Uh, Willa Brandt, I should say, was supportive of the flapper, and she, she gave an interview in which she said, when I was a girl, it was considered a sin to kiss a man before one was engaged. Now the so-called flapper kisses when she likes, and she is none the worse for it. So here's somebody you all might recognize. Here's J. Edgar Hoover. Um, J. Edgar Hoover was 29 years old in 1924 when he was named the director of the Bureau of Investigation, which was the precursor to the FBI. Uh, they didn't have the federal part until later. Um, and he got promoted to director at Willebrandt's urging. Mabel Willebrandt is the one responsible for making J. Edgar Hoover a director at the FBI. Um, he got promoted despite his bit of a shady history with the Bureau. As many here, I'm sure, know, he was involved in the Palmer raids um, and the uh, illegal detention and arrest of many suspected anarchists and communists. Um, and one positive about J. Edgar Hoover, though, he was determined to have good prohibition agents. He wanted an honest force of agents. He was very serious about this. And one of the pledges he made when he took his office was that he was going to rid the Bureau of any dishonest or corrupt agent. Um, and he, just like George Ramos, had begun hearing rumors about Franklin Dodge, um, and especially what Franklin Dodge was doing with Imogene Ramos, uh, the wife of the bootlegger that Mabel Willebrandt was, was always worried about and prosecuting and continuing to keep tabs on. So what does Hoover do? Hoover actually sends an agent to investigate Agent Dodge. Um, so there's a little spy versus spy going on. And what does Hoover's agent discover? He finds out that George, um, excuse me, that Franklin Dodge and Imogene Remus are stealing whis Remus's whiskey certificates and endeavoring to sell them. They are stealing prized possessions from his mansion. And at one point, Hoover's agent actually catches Franklin Dodge literally with his pants down, um, which I have to admit was a fun scene to write. Um, especially considering the hotel um, rules and restrictions they had back in the time. It, was, it, it took a lot of effort for Imogene and, and Franklin Dodge to go around together. But anyway, just to put things into perspective, in this book, J. Edgar Hoover is one of the good guys. So, so here is George Remus in the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary, um, wearing not an orange jumpsuit, but his silk three-piece suit, um, dressed in his finery, of course not wearing any underwear as always. But don't let his morose expression fool you. Uh, George Remus was in a section of the Atlanta penitentiary called Millionaire's Row, um, where all of the very wealthy bootleggers were housed. Uh, he hired a maid and a personal cook. He had all of his dinners um, on a long mahogany table with fresh linens and fresh flowers delivered every day by Imogene. Imogene was allowed to come and scrub her, his cell on her hands and knees, which she did often. Um, and uh, he, he, he had quite a lavish lifestyle in jail, but nevertheless, he was miserable. And I, I think that he was miserable because George Remus was a control freak. Um, and even with his lavish lifestyle, you, of course, you're losing control in prison. Um, he did not have control of his bootlegging empire, his money, or most of all, control of his wife. And he also began hearing rumors about Franklin Dodge and what he was possibly up to with Imogene. And the more he heard about this, the more he became unhinged. And he wrote um, very unhinged letters to Imogene um, in the midst of this when he was starting to um, say that his mind was turning. And I'm just going, because Remus has such a gorgeous and strange way with words, I'm just going to read an excerpt of my favorite letter to Imogene. To the only true and sweetest little girl in the whole dear world, to the apple of my, my eye, not one but both, how glorious it feels to know that my sweetheart is cheery again. Little one, you do not know what it means to have you away from me for long. The minutes turn into days, the days into months, and the months into years. I crave you. I would devour you. I care only for you, a human madness. 
All other matters are infinitesimal against you and only you. Therefore, you see how I burst into a human cloud, burst with a vitriolic tongue interspersed. My only wife. How is it that you are a monkey? You are a centipede. You are a gem. You are a jewel. You are a combination of all the aforesaid in one. If I but had you this very moment, I would demonstrate all of the foregoing with a real vigor and vim unexcelled. How about it? <laughs> um, I do not want to wear the centipede. I think is the strangest in term of endearment I've ever come across, but whatever. So meanwhile, anytime George Remus said, are you cultivating Dodge? Is he working on a plan to get me out of prison? And, Rima, and Imogene would just say, yes, daddy, I'm cultivating Dodge. And don't worry, Mr. Dodge is our friend. So here is Harry Truesdale, a man named Harry Truesdale, who is the hired hitman that um, Imogene Remus and Franklin Dodge um, recruit to kill George Remus. Now, at one point, Truesdale, who is a hardened criminal and a professional killer, is so terrified of both George and Imogene Remus that he wants out of the whole thing. <laughs> he doesn't know which one is more dangerous. He doesn't know who's going to kill whom. He's afraid they're both going to turn on him and kill him. Um, just to give you a sense of the sort of whodunit and the, the craziness, craziness that develops as these people get deeper and deeper into their mess. So here's my final slide. This is George Remus's tombstone. Um, he is buried in Falmouth Center, Falmouth Center, excuse me, Riverside Cemetery in Falmouth, Kentucky. Um, you can see that he, uh, there are angels that are missing their wings here, um, where the wings once were, there are just little tabs. Um, and according to lore, somebody wrote a letter and said that George Remus, having lived the life that he lived, did not deserve to have uh, wings on his angels on a tombstone. So the very next day, somebody took a hammer, went to the tombstone, and whacked the wings right off. So, and that's how it appears today. Um, and I like to say that, finish by saying, uh, the people who do what I do, who write narrative nonfiction, we often lament that the dead people do not do what we want them to do. <laughs> and I like to say it's true that the Ghost of Eden Park represents the very first time that the dead people did exactly what I wanted them to do. <laughs> so, thank you very much. If anybody has questions or... Um... Thank you. Any bootlegging stories from their own families? I'd be curious to hear. Just a personal story. My great-grandfather from Italy had a distillery here in Richmond in the oh, East wow. End. And we have lots of articles from the Richmond papers about him. Um, but some of my favorite stories, are, my grandmother remembers when the feds came in and chopped up the barrels. Oh, wow. And they told him that he could continue to make it for them, but not for <laughs> anybody else, which he politely refused to do and then continued to make it for everybody else. Um, my favorite story is he had spies, and when the feds were coming to inspect, oh, he turned it into a soda bottling company. Uh, um, when the feds came did. to, yeah, why not? <laughs> uh, when they came to inspect, the spies would let them know, and they would take the barrels and open them and let it th just run down the hill into the pond, and it killed all the ducks. Oh, <laughs> no. Oh, and by the way, I have one of those canes with flasks. Oh, do you really? Oh, my God. How much alcohol does it actually hold? Um, about that much. Okay, not bad. <laughs> Good spike a few drinks. Thank you for sharing that. That's great. Okay. I was just wondering if you, I came a little late, so you may have addressed it, if the, what the Kennedy family had to do, Joe Kennedy and all those family, had to do with bootlegging. Because oh, my grandmother said, no, she didn't like any Kennedys because Joe Kennedy with that bootlegging stuff, okay, that's it. Well, that's true. I think that's how they made a large part of their fortune. Um, that's an entire other book that somebody, I'm sure, has already written or is working on now. But, but yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's pretty established that they, they made a lot of their fortune from bootlegging and as uh, part of the, the city, uh, the, the family's elements of secretive and shady history back then. So. What is the derivation of the, of the word bootlegging? 
Oh, it's a good question. Um, I write about this in the book a little bit. It's it's uh, a word that came from when um, people would go into Native American uh, Indian reservations and hide uh, little flasks in the boots of their legs to go trading. And so it, it came from um, hiding the, the flask actually slipped down into their boot, so bootleg. Yeah. As a very successful author, can you tell me how many hours you took writing the book? How many hours? Oh, it took like three and a half years. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I wish I could do one in a few hours. I'd have, I'd have 30 books by now. Uh, um, yeah, it, it's usually, well, um, people often ask, do you research and write at the same time? And I learned the hard way um, that if I only research first and then I go into writing, um, I, I fall down into a very dangerous territory that I call the rabbit hole. Um, and I learned this with my first book, uh, which was about uh, two sisters around the world's most famous brothel in the early 20th century. Um, and the, and uh, I, I fell down into a rabbit hole of the kinds of contraceptive methods people used back in the early 1900s. And it was a two-month rabbit hole filled with interesting historical research and, um, you know, going back into prehistoric, you know, times and, all, you know, all this. And, and it ends up being a line in my book that later got cut. <laughs> And I spent about two months on it, and I realized, you know, I, I, I it's fun. It's the research is the, my favorite part. But in order to meet deadlines, which I, I do have to meet, in order to get paid and and have you know keep going, um, you have to research and write at the same time. So that way, I, I, I the story is guiding me into the research. And if I want to pause and, and researching more deeply, I will. I know it won't go to waste because the story is going there. Um, so it's uh, the whole thing usually takes about. It took me, like I said, it, it took me four months alone just to go through that trial transcript and take careful notes and 85,000 words. And then you have to find where to, how to weave that all together. So it's, it's a long process, but about three and a half, it took me about three and a half years for this one. And that wasn't even my, I think my longest book that took me was, was the Civil War book, which you can imagine that's a, a big learning curve. So, yeah. I wish it took hours though. I like the way you think. <laughs> How did Remus die, or do I need to buy the book? Oh, I don't want to. <laughs> well, that, that's part of the reason I wanted to write it as a whodunit, because I, I don't think there were, they, Imogene and George were two equally disturbed and crafty individuals, and, um, and they were so evenly matched. And I, I very deliberately took trial transcripts, um, and, and they both wanted to kill each other. I will say that um, it goes back and forth, and and I would prefer I would prefer for uh, anybody in the audience who wants to be surprised and by the story to to just say you know read the book. <laughs> but thank you. Any more? Well, thank you very much, Karen. Thank you. Thank you again. Oh. Also, I just want to say, if anybody, if anybody here has a book club, um, I Skype into book clubs, so that's always fun. It's uh, and uh, just let me know, and we can arrange that. So. <laughs>